Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm Madamita Mergia, European Technology Correspondent at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from Mustafa Suleiman of DeepMind, the company behind the computer program that conquered the ancient board game of Go using an artificial neural network. This week we talked to a man who is making a bet that self-driving cars will be a boon for robotics startups. You know, 10 years ago when smartphones came out, they started to develop a lot of technologies that really reduced the cost and increased the functionality of a lot of really great sensors. And I think that ubiquitous robotics are going to be the peace dividend of the self-driving car wars. That is the voice of Jeremy Conrad, co-founder of hardware incubator turned VC firm, Lemnos Labs. He spoke with Tim Bradshaw in San Francisco. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. You started Lemnos Labs in about 2011. What was the rationale for a dedicated hardware incubator in Silicon Valley at that time, and how has that evolved? Yeah, so my co-founder and I were both MIT undergrads together, and we both studied mechanical engineering. And we both worked for about five years before moving out to San Francisco. And we played with a bunch of different ideas, but we kept coming back to this idea of wanting to start a hardware company. And this was summer 2011, and we started talking to people, and the response was universal. No one should start a hardware company. It's a terrible idea. And, you know, we just didn't believe that. And based on some work I'd done in the Air Force, I knew that you could get a lot of work done in the modern era for a quarter, half million dollars, even 50 or 100 grand. And so there's this old adage in the Valley of, as an entrepreneur, that sometimes when you have a problem, the company you should start solves that problem. And so that's why we started Lemnos. Why were people telling you it was such a terrible idea? I think what it really was is if you look at kind of like 2000 to, you know, 2011 when we started, it really was the heyday of the web and mobile. And so a lot of the VCs at that time had, you know, studied computer science and were experts in not hardware things. And so I think that there had been a lot of things that had changed. You know, we talk a lot about how, you know, digital tools made it a lot cheaper to get things done, how just things like the smartphone and all these other kind of core technologies had advanced so much. And so I think they were just operating on this beliefs of when they first got into venture in the late 90s, watching just these incredibly expensive projects get off the ground. But you, you already had companies like Fitbit and GoPro have been going for a little while then, and they're now public companies, not maybe performing quite as well as public companies as they were when they first got out a couple of years ago. But has that changed? Has the sort of shown that you can get big exits with hardware or what 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 has kind of convinced people oh absolutely the past 36 months have just been great in terms of an overall ecosystem and you know i know that fitbit and gopro certainly may not have done as well as you know some people may have liked but at the end of the day they're liquid unicorns right like you can cash out if you want to and i think that you know there's 200 other private unicorns out there right now who you know wish they had the problem of being a billion dollar public company right and they they sell products and people pay money to buy them and that kind of crazy, crazy ideas for this part of the world. And so who's done well from from your fund so far? And tell us about you just raised another 50 million uh, yes, for the new fund. You know, so our, our new fund's $50 million. And with that, you know, we can do pre-seed and seed stage hardware companies. And really, the companies that we have that are farthest along are Aspire and Airware. So Aspire is, you know, I think a great example of how different things are today in terms of building hardware companies. So they actually build CubeSats. So these are satellites the size of a loaf of bread. And they actually listen from space for radio signals for doing things like boat tracking, 
plane tracking, and eventually weather prediction. And you know, they built and launched their first two satellites in our warehouse in San Francisco for less than eight hundred thousand dollars in about fifteen months. And you know, now they've got offices in four different countries. And for us, when we really look at it, we say, you know, how did they do this? Well. The tech stacks got super easy, but also just that product innovation cycle really compresses when you can have CAD systems that are $500 instead of $50,000. Things as simple as the fact that they have Dropbox and they can transfer files seamlessly, whereas 15 years ago, people were still FedExing hard drives to get plans to other people. Right. And you've had a couple of exits as well. Spratling was yes. sold to Mattel. So we had two, two exits. Uh, one was Locomotion was actually acquired by Zipcar. And Locomotion really focused on the hardware and software related to kind of corporate car sharing. And the other one was a company called Spratling, which does uh, baby tech. And Mattel acquired them uh, in 2016. And as you were saying, the, the, some of these companies got started in your facility. This isn't just a financial operation. You're not just there doling out cash, you get your hands dirty and roll up your sleeves and, and you've got quite a lot of kit. Exactly. And, and for us, it's really about kind of being that embedded VC. The thing that's really, you know, makes hardware a lot more difficult is you can make decisions today that won't kill you for a year or 18 months, but they definitively will end your company. And we screen companies all the time that are walking dead. And we tell them, we say, actually, there is no way that when you get to production that it will cost this little or that, you know, this distribution channel will, will really work. And so for us, you know, we invest when it's often too people in an idea. And we really dig in with them to make sure that they aren't going to make any of those kind of fatal decisions early on. What are the common errors when, when people are starting out? Like, what are the kind of assumptions that people make? A really kind of classic one is just what does it actually cost to build that product? Because the, a lot of times there's a lot of sunk costs for that first production run. And if you don't fully understand like what it actually takes to spin up a production line or to support that production line, that you're just going to be like dead from day one. Another area where people really just don't understand is that blend of how do you do the hardware development, but also that like marketing or B2B sales aspect and understanding what kind of timelines those take. But it has got a lot easier. I mean, I don't know whether it's prototyping on 3D printing or sort of contract manufacturers in Asia or, or even around here that you can use to, to produce this stuff. I mean, the, the, the overall barrier to entry in hardware has, has come down quite quite a long way. Absolutely. It, just like it has on software. And, and really, the reason we think that these companies are really starting to succeed today is not only is their you know, actual, the costs have gone down, but we see a larger and larger venture appetite. So our companies alone have raised over $300 million after our investments, and they've raised that same money from these tier one venture capital firms. And I think that's the biggest change in the last five years, as, as you've seen like Fitbit and GoPro and DGI and Nest you know, now that people see large exits in these fields, they really start to pay more attention to them. And the, the big kind of hardware startup venture, if you like, that's coming online at the moment is self-driving cars. And we're seeing a huge number of companies piling into that area with the sort of the, the big guys like Google and, and Uber, as well as, as a lot of startups. What's what do you see the opportunity there? Have you invested in any of those kind of companies or, you know, is building a car a bit too ambitious for a, for a startup? <laughs> So we haven't done any self-driving car investments. You know, I actually think Cruise probably had the best strategy of any of it, where they built this incredible company. You know, Kyle built an absolutely amazing team. But then by selling to GM, now he gets the scale of General Motors, right? One of the largest automakers in the world. And I think that, you know, from a self-driving car perspective, I think it's one of those things very much like mobile phones was like 10 years ago, where there was a lot of people skeptical that the Valley could just kind of wake up and kind of take on these types of ecosystems. And I think it's going to be very similar. As that supply chain scales up, one of your kind of primary investment theses for the new fund is how that 
creates new opportunities for other kinds of companies and other kinds of devices that and robotics that take advantage of the investment that's going into the self-driving car world at, at the moment. I've got a friend who you know, has this catchphrase where he says he likes to invest in companies that surf Moore's Law. Really what he means by that, invest in a company today where maybe the unit economics aren't quite there, but 18 months, 24 months from now, they break even, and two years after that, they're just crushing it. And you know, I think a classic example is Dropbox, where you pay Dropbox the same amount of money every year, and every year, storage costs go down because there's this you know, trillion-dollar ecosystem pushing down storage costs. One thing that I'm really interested in is how, for self-driving cars, the wide-scale production of LiDARs is just going to drop that price an order of magnitude, if not two. And then what are the secondary effects of that? What is LiDAR? Just to explain briefly. LiDAR is laser radar. And so basically what it is is you take a laser and you push it out into the world, and then you actually, it bounces off things and you read that reflection. And so the thing that makes it a really great tool for things like robotics is you can get a full structured map of the world that you're in. So you can do object avoidance, you can do object detection and object recognition. For anyone that's seen a self-driving car, they're the little kind of spinny things on the on the roof <laughs> usually, or sometimes on the side that, that kind of let the car see the world around it in real time. Absolutely. And the thing is that as you start to see self-driving cars designed from the ground up, those will all disappear. Just like, you know, you don't really see the automotive radars that they've put into a lot of cars for adaptive cruise control. I think that all this stuff just kind of disappears kind of into the sides. How much do those cost at the moment? And, and as you see more people innovating on that hardware, including Google's Waymo unit, their self-driving car, and, and they're in litigation with Uber right now over this exact technology. So it's obviously a very key component. How much does this cost at the moment? And how do you see that cost coming down? You know, they're anywhere from between $25,000 up to things like one to $200,000 per unit. And then most of the self-driving cars now need multiple of them. You know, if you really look at the kind of the history of the automotive supply chain, I think there's a very realistic world where these get down to less than $1,000 in the next five years. And so what does that facilitate what, and what does that mean for companies trying to use that in other kinds of applications? Right now, when you look at most, when we look at most of our robotics investments, just the LiDAR itself is often between 25 to 75% of the total cost of the robot. And so if you can start a robotics company today where you're using these very high-end LiDARs and you just know that in five years that your unit economics are fundamentally different, you know, that changes everything. You know, SpaceX just did the first ever reuse of a rocket. And today there's a bunch of people doing some analysis that said they think that they could knock 30 to 40 percent off the cost. And that would change the entire launch industry. Here we're talking about 50 to 75 percent of the total cost of a core function. And, and, and really, the reason that I'm so focused on this is because there's historical precedent for it. You know, 10 years ago when smartphones came out, they started to develop a lot of technologies that really reduced the cost and increase the functionality of a lot of really great sensors. And Chris Anderson you know, has famously said that you know, cheap drones are the peace dividend of the smartphone wars. And I think that ubiquitous robotics are going to be the peace dividend of the self-driving car wars. Chris Anderson, who was the wide editor turned drone entrepreneur. And yeah, I mean, he, so we've, that was what helped things like DJI to create a, a camera drone that costs less than $1,000. Or I mean, you can get like 20, 20 bucks or something <laughs> these days if you want the really dodgy ones. But yeah. And so what are the kind of uh, are the particular companies that you're investing in right now or particular kind of applications that you're that you're looking at because robotics i think most people at the moment think of being something that's kind of used in a factory production line or the sort of at the other end of the scale you have the sort of 
you know the kind of robot greeters like SoftBank's Pepper and, and retail stores. I mean, like there's a, there's a large <laughs> a large difference between those two things. A, a broad spectrum of what can come. Are there other kind of particular topics that you're focused on? Right now, we're most focused on industrial and commercial robots. But the big change with these lidars and these cheap lidars is going to be robots that can interact with other human beings. Right now, if you look at automotive robots, they're behind these giant cages that no one can get near because they have no eyes. They just are these arms that are waving around and can kill people. Whereas, you know, an example of, in our portfolio is we have a company called Marble, which does last mile delivery robotics on sidewalks. And so if they didn't have the ability to, to see and react to the world, it would be completely crazy to put them out there. I guess another component of the self-driving car world that's, that's still to come, but is, is going to be an important part is 5G connections and, and making sure there are low cost, ubiquitous wireless chips in everything that are even even more bandwidth friendly than 4G right now. I mean, is, is that another part of it as well? Because these things have got to be unplugged eventually. Absolutely. For us, when we look at our robotics companies, we want to see a company that can have a robot that understands when it's about to fail and can fail safely. Because if you can do that and then you can call home, it's fundamentally different. You know, 15 years ago, if you deployed an industrial robot into a factory and it failed, it might be down for a week because you got to call the guy, the tech's got to fly out there often. And so the factories would just rip these robot arms out and just keep doing however they were doing it. Whereas now if that robot arm can fail and then I can have a tech dial in because it's got LTE or 5G and figure out what's wrong, get it back into its start position and hit go, most factories are going to be okay with a couple minutes of downtime. And that could apply to, as, as you were saying, delivery delivery robots that are on the pavement. I, I remember seeing it outside... Uh, somewhere in the in the mission, not that long ago, actually, there was there was a robot being taken for a walk by a woman, or, or possibly <laughs> vice versa. Uh, it was kind of on a leash uh, that was going by. It's like one of those kind of only in San Francisco kind of moments. But that you you don't you don't need necessarily to have supervision. I guess it could almost be like a kind of taxi system where you have a central person kind of monitoring this sort of large numbers of these robots in the field, thanks to the ability to kind of just take control remotely if you need and, to. And from a startup perspective, the reason that this is transformational is it means you can deploy the robots earlier. And so every every little bit earlier that you can deploy a robot means that much money that you save, means that you can actually get into customers' hands. We can start earning money and to really prove that whatever application you're working on is something that people want. And, and I think that is the biggest thing for us of where by really understanding that customer desires and getting that data back, you can iterate faster on those robots. Right. The, the data back portion is important, I guess, because at the moment in the self-driving car world, there's a, there's a lot of kind of people waving around numbers of, well, we've driven a million miles of autonomous vehicles <laughs> and you guys have only driven whatever and how many cars are on the road and that kind of stuff. But you need that real world experience to collect that data to help model the AI and figure out how these things will work. And you also need it just to prove that this is safe. I think that the FAA certainly has you know, set a lot of really great precedents and has a lot of structure around. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. 
how they certify manned aircraft. And so certainly, you know, these are not manned aircraft. They are not going at those speeds. So there should be a different standard. But certainly, you know, and I think California is doing a great job of like working with these companies to understand what are the risks and where they should be deployed. Do you see the the rules that are coming in for autonomous cars being applicable to other kinds of robotics? Does that transfer easily? Or, or do you see it more coming from, you know, how the FAA has regulated private drones and, and you know, consumer quadcopters? We're big fans in general of risk-based regulations. And this really is about what is the capability of for if something goes wrong, how bad could it be? So cars weigh, you know, a ton or two. They're going tens, if not, you know, tens of miles an hour, 50, 80 miles an hour. So there's a lot of danger there. So I think you need to have a much higher safety standard to start. If you have, you know, a small drone flying in the middle of nowhere, I think the regulation should be very different. So I think it really is going to be on a case-by-case thing. And we certainly work with our startups to make sure that they are thinking about how to have these robots that fail safely. Because, you know, if you're driving down the sidewalk and the robot fails, you're no different than just like the little things that you can grab a newspaper out of. So there's not like an endemic risk there. Are there any other kind of enabling technologies that are coming online that that really help the startups that you're working with at the moment? I mean, the, a lot of the chip companies like Intel and NVIDIA are really pushing into computer vision. We saw Intel buy Mobileye and NVIDIA is is embedded in the uh, in the Tesla autopilot system. Are those technologies kind of applicable or, again, is the kind of fundamental processor architecture different for different kinds of robotics applications? You know, if you look at the history of chips, you know, like 80 years ago, everything was custom ASIC, like every single thing. And then kind of, you know, Intel really kind of won the fight of the, you know, kind of general purpose processor, right? And so we spent decades with that. And there was that first offshoot, you know, and that was GPUs. And now NVIDIA is really dominating that market. I think in the next five years, we're going to see an explosion of custom ASICs. I think there will be ones that specifically just do voice recognition. I think there will be ones that are doing computer vision. I think if you take, as you have a billion, billions of devices made every year, then the economics now makes sense of where I can spin custom silicon and sell these chips into the market and still have a very viable company. It's not really a startup example, but I guess the most obvious instance of that in the market right now would be the way Apple has sort of developed its own kind of chips, the W1 chip that it talks about in the AirPods that make it better for doing Bluetooth and wireless communications. That That's the kind of model you're talking about. Absolutely. And, and, and there are startup examples. If there's a company called Movidius that got acquired last year where they were doing just some really great kind of new chip technologies. And I believe that Intel picked them up. Right. At the moment, the processors that are sitting in self-driving cars can cost hundreds or potentially thousands of dollars, which may not scale when you're not selling a robot that's not costing tens of thousands of dollars as a, as a car does. Do you see that sort of technology abiding by Moore's law and, and we see, or even faster and we see the costs really starting to come down or is there a, is there a kind of gating factor on just the, you know, the silicon there and how expensive that becomes? I definitely think that Moore's law is continuing and it's continuing in things like GPUs. So I do see the cost continuing to come down. The other thing is that self-driving cars, because of the speed and their danger potential, need to process things a lot faster. If you said instead had a robot that only went four miles an hour, you might be able to get away with a lot less efficient processors just because you don't need the reaction time that that kind of technology can give you. When I look back at that, that's sort of the idea of the kind of piece of the end of the smartphone was there was... I mean, that even kind of helped with virtual reality getting off the ground. A lot of the sort of first screens and and motion sensors were just pulled straight from a Samsung smartphone and put into the Oculus prototypes and that kind of thing. But as you get further down that road, it, it only kind of takes you so far, I guess, that it, it kind of gets the, it gets things going. But if you if you want to make a pair of augmented reality glasses, you've got to design a whole new kind of optic system or lenses and all of that kind of stuff. How far does the 
I mean, based on your experience with what we've seen in robotics and electronics companies in the last five years and what you foresee for the next 10, is the self-driving car technology what gets a new generation of robotics companies off the ground? And then they have to kind of develop their own supply chain themselves? Or, or do you think that there's a sort of general utility there of these components that's, that's sort of infinitely flexible? I think about half the core components that future robotics companies need are going to come for free from self-driving cars. So a lot of the sensor packages, a lot of the super high-end processors, and really pushing out that 5G connectivity, those are all things that self-driving cars are going to have to do. The parts where the self-driving car is not going to help you at all is specifically locomotion and manipulation. Like self-driving cars are cars, the car ecosystem exists, but if I have a robot that maybe I want to have be a biped or if I need to have it get around an office, you know, GM's supply chain doesn't really help me with that. And then actually now that final step of that robot doing something, that robot manipulating something, you know, all these robotics companies or a robotics company is going to need to develop hands and arms that are completely unique to their ecosystems. Is that a startup problem or do you see other kinds of robotics companies or suppliers coming in to sort of fill that gap? You know, the way I view kind of existing robot arms companies is kind of what mainframe companies were like in the early 80s. I think for the next generation of robotics companies, they're going to all be done by startups because these kind of entire giant corporations aren't structured in a way to respond to the new market dynamics and the new market demands. So does that mean if you are coming into you know, Silicon Valley without you know, PhD in robotics or or this kind of stuff. How accessible is this to someone now with a, you know, a bright idea, but maybe, uh, you know, just enough technology knowledge to get themselves in trouble? Is it because we're seeing such a talent war at the moment for, you know, AI and, uh, and and robotics experience? Does it lower the barrier to entry for, you know, someone with less specialized knowledge there? I absolutely think it does. And I think that, you know, the fact that you don't have to have a PhD to start a robotics company today is why we're going to see an explosion of robotics startups. Really, when you kind of like dig down into it, the stack is getting shorter. And sure, you're going to need to have build a team of people who might have PhDs or individual expertise. But really, if you want to just get like a single working prototype out there, it takes, you know, an order of magnitude, if not two, less effort than it used to. One of the slightly more out there ideas that's been talked about as a as a sort of follow up to the self driving car is the self flying car. I guess the sort of idea we've had Uber publish what is it Uber Elevate is their <laughs> is their sort of brand for flying cars that they published a white paper last year and they they've hired a, a reasonably senior NASA engineer recently. You've got other startups in the valley that are kind of working on that space that Larry Page has backed and other other folks. I mean, is is this just a sort of um, publicity stunt and a billionaire's plaything, or do you see there being something really meaningful there that could if you'll forgive the pun, get off the ground. <laughs> so I definitely think there's something there. And I think that, you know, when you really look at the history of technology, a lot of things started off as billionaires placings that now all of us use every day. And, you know, 30 years ago, we never thought, we, you know, would be accessible to, you know, almost every person on the planet. So, you know, I think there's a couple trends that we've been tracking, you know, battery density is getting better, simulation, autonomy, all these things, I think, are pushing towards a future where the kind of flying car is something that is accessible and deployed out in the real world. What would that look like? I mean, what, what are the kind of use cases for that? Is it a kind of commuter vehicle at this point? Uh, you know, I think that there's a bunch of different applications. You know, historically, one of the major things that held back helicopters was just the expense and expertise of you had to have this dedicated pilot. 
I think that as you end up with these crafts that are autonomous and by the nature of being like all electric or have a much lower maintenance cost, you start to see them in specialized circumstances to start. But I think over the long term, I think that more and more cities will adopt kind of these like special heliports just to actually have some flow. So, you know, if you needed to get across the Bay Ridge right now and you're willing to pay a little bit extra that you could actually go ahead and expedite that. A little bit extra? You know, I haven't seen any of the cost models yet, but I, th I think that, you know, in general, lots of stuff starts fairly expensive. I mean, kind of the first data plan for your cell phone was, you know, was, was prohibitively expensive. And now, you know, data is practically free in many places. You think this could, this has a serious shot of being something that could be, if, if the, I mean, I know there's a lot of legal regulatory <laughs> risk stuff that has to go into that, but the, but the technology is kind of feasible potentially for this to. Uh, you know, I think that, and this is another thing that's really coming out of the, the, you know, kind of if cheap drones or the piece dividend and the smartphone wars, you know, self-flying cars are going to be the peace dividend of the drone wars because all the core technologies, you have all these massive people, uh, companies fighting each other to really get the core technology down. And then now you just have to take it that final step of getting the quality and reliability up. So I really do think it's a future that's coming. What else are you looking for, knowing that you've been working in this space for a long time and you, you've got a lot of experience? Are the kind of gaps that you see that the kind of the technology, the window is opening for a certain kind of technology, but you've not yet seen any entrepreneurs jump up. You know, one area that we really are interested in right now is what we call them applied sensors companies, where as sensors are now basically free, and AI is getting better, what else could you do with it? So we've looked at companies that are doing everything from, you know, putting cameras everywhere in a business to do like real time analytics to, you know, companies that are using, you know, LIDARs on Cessnas to actually start to do agricultural stuff. So I think that kind of, you know, as you start to marry the digital and physical world, there's this vast possibilities of these companies that can like take things that you could theoretically historically only do like in the cloud or on cloud based technologies and actually apply them to the real world in a way that no one's ever done before. The difference between what you're saying, doing them in the cloud, so that you can do more of that processing locally, and so you. If you look at like a business like Google, right? Like they've always been able to run analytics on every aspect of their business because it was all digital to begin with, and so their you know kind of turn time in terms of feature sets, their like just day to day analytics. If you were Larry Page, you could by the minute get click rates, ad rates, everything going on. Whereas you know if you're Jeff Immelt over at GE. You know, you don't know how your factories are necessarily doing every day. You don't have the ability to hedge if something's going wrong because by the time you know about it, it's often too late. And so, you know, as GE has pushed to have like digitize their manufacturing capabilities, you know, he can now kind of compete with Larry Page in terms of that availability and that response. And so I think that there's historically been a lot of industries where just as, a, as an executive, as a CEO, you just didn't have the insight you wanted to have into how your company was operating and with these ubiquitous sensors and these companies that are going to gather and process that data will allow you to. Do you think these are the robotics companies that you're talking about? Is it primarily being used in sort of industry and business or is there a sort of consumer electronics play here as well? Because consumer electronics, is, as we were talking about at the beginning with GoPro and Fitbit, it can be a more fickle world and, and maybe the kind of standards around design or marketing are, are kind of different. Do you, do you see the consumer robotics thing happening or is it is it easier to just sell to industry? So I don't think consumer robots are ready today, but not because consumers are too fickle. I mean, you know, the largest company in the world is a consumer electronics company by far. I, I think what it is, is the, the variation in uh, homes is actually just too much. So if you look at just like the United States, there's between 100 and 120 years of built infrastructure. So trying to design a robot that could move around a brand 
new suburb in Arizona, and at the same time that robot navigate a 120-year-old house in Boston proper, it's, it's very difficult because there's just such a large variation. The nice thing about selling robots into you know, businesses and commercial enterprise is they're more standard, they're newer, and you can just say it only works in this environment. Consumers, can, you know, it's a, it can be difficult. I was talking with a friend of mine who used to work on the iPhone team, and he was telling me that, you know, one of the returns they got, the person had accidentally dropped a barbell on it, and they returned it. And, and that's the problem is, like, consumers have, like, crazy expectations for things of you took the phone and threw it out the window and it broke. God, Apple sucks. It's like, no. like the, so, so I think that for robotics today, it is about, like, keeping it in a slightly more constrained environment, and then over time we'll get to the home. Okay. I'm surprised that you say that people's homes are more complicated than the roads in some ways. Like, I mean, there's, there's a sort of infinite variety of things that can go wrong on the streets that self-driving cars are trying to solve. I guess maybe that speaks to the idea that they'll be launched in more specific areas than go everywhere all by themselves at once. But it, is it a solvable problem in the longer so, time? So the, the reason that self-driving cars are able to go do these things is very specifically because they go ahead and they map everything ahead of time. So, you know, all the companies out there, and this is something that Google's been doing for a very long time, they build these maps. And these maps are such a core part of their value. Nokia has one of the, had one of the better mapping divisions out there. And the German automakers got together and bought it for $3 billion because they were so afraid of losing that data. And that data wasn't even nice LiDAR data. So the reason that homes are more difficult is because if I have to come in and scan your entire home to deploy the robot, that just adds a lot of friction and a lot of cost. So I think that as robots get better and as you, know, you have better ability to onboard and say, OK, now here's a $500 LiDAR. But now it's like if the robot plus Plus LiDAR plus the tech now costs three, four, five thousand dollars to install that robot. You know, that's that's something that not many people are gonna buy today. Great. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed for taking the time. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.